Welcome to the Shepherd's Crook Podcast. The Shepherd's Crook exists to provide care, counsel, and resources for pastors. You can get more information at theshepherdscrook.co. My name is Jared Sparks, and I'm a pastor coming alongside other pastors, reminding them of the chief pastor. Okay, welcome to the Shepherd's Crook Podcast. I am excited to have, well, I guess uh, he's a reoccurring guest now. He's back for the second time. I'm talking to Chris Wiley today. Chris, you doing good? I'm real well. Good deal. Why don't we pray, and then we got a lot of good stuff to talk about. Uh, Father, we just thank you for this time. I pray that you would lead, guide this discussion. Holy Spirit, point us to Jesus. And I pray that uh, as we're talking to talking to Chris here, that you would lead uh, us to think through what's going on with 2020 and what's that exposed about the church in America? What what has that exposed about pastoral ministry in America? And then several other things as well. Just lead the discussion. I trust you're going to. Uh, we thank you for this opportunity. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right. Well, I guess... If if people haven't heard the last episode I had with you on, why don't you go ahead and just say real quick, just tell people who you are, why uh, your name is C.R. Wiley on your books, uh, and yet your friends call you Chris, and okay. and then uh, what it is that you do. Well, to answer the question about the name, I always feel a little pretentious when you know I say I'm C.R. Wiley because I, I, I imagine that people think I'm in the same league with C.S. Lewis and J.R. Tolkien and you know, J.K. Rowling and stuff, but it doesn't have anything to do with that. Everything, uh, the reason for it is that the name Chris Wiley, if you Google it, you get a Hollywood guy. There's an actor named Chris Wiley. Okay. And I'm like, I, I don't want to have to compete with that. So, <laughs> you know, I'd like to be able to ha- make it so it's easier for people to find me. So I tried to Google C.R. Wiley, and what do you know? It was just me, you know, if I did that. And so if you if you Google C.R. Wiley, I'm like the first five or six pages, and that's all there is to it. It's just, <laughs> nice. Everybody just everyone just calls me Chris, and uh, so I, I'm a, I'm a pastor in Connecticut, and I've written a bunch of stuff. Um, got a background in teaching philosophy. I've got a background in real estate and investing, and uh, also building. I was a contractor for a while, so I've got three grown children. My youngest is uh, at Grove City College. Just started her junior year. My my sons, my my first and second born, both married now, beautiful girls. Uh, so I've got, you know, two new daughters-in-law over the awesome. past few years, and uh, no grandkids yet. But my wife is very, uh, you know, strongly advocating and uh, <laughs> pres- pressuring for that. So uh, I know the kids want children, so it'll it'll happen. But anyway, that's who I am, and, and I've written a, I've written a few things, and I think one of the books that I've written we're going to talk about. Yeah, good deal. Well, I appreciate that. Well, before we get to talking about Man of the House, I wanted to talk a little bit about 2020. You've been in pastoral ministry a little bit longer than I have now. How, how many years have you been serving as a pastor now, Chris? Uh, from 1987. Okay, so 35 years-ish, something like that. You've been in ministry a long time. Is 2020, has 2020 been a unique year for you as well? I've only been in this for 12 years, but 2020, I think, has been a unique year for even guys that have been in this for over 30 years. Is that fair to say? Oh, yeah. I mean, th- things have happened that have never happened before. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, essentially what, what happened from the standpoint of our uh, governing authorities is they suspended the First Amendment for a while. And that, and that had a, a pretty profound effect mm-hmm. <laughs> on church life. And even now, I think that you can make the case that I'm speaking initially of the quarantine. And when we talk about the quarantine, mm-hmm. essentially what, what they did is they, they suspended freedom of religion 
and uh, freedom of association. Yeah. I don't think there's any way you can get around that. Right. So that then they said, okay, the worst is passed, or at least we think we got a handle on it. And then they gave us a bunch of restrictions. So they're still restricting religious practice. Let's mm-hmm. just put it as plainly and bluntly as we can. Right. Uh, should we, or we should put it. And that's what we have right now. So that's affected us. Uh, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Now, I think, you know, there, there's a, a long debate that could be conducted on whether or not it was justified or not. Mm-hmm. But, right. but that's what happened. Okay. So in light of that... Pastors have experienced things they've never walked through before. They've been driven to the scriptures to think through things theologically that they've not had to think through before, or at least if they have thought it through before, it's kind of this periphery idea, idea that's on the edges. And uh, But now with the race riots also and with the corona, pastors are are just wrestling and praying through, and, and elder teams are trying to figure out, figure out several different things. But one of the things I want to ask you is what do you think that 2020 has exposed about the church in America and about the pastorate in particular about what we were or were not prepared for in light of something like this? What, what is this exposed about the church and about the pastorate in our country? Yeah, I think that one thing it's exposed um, is just how weak uh, the commitment of uh, some of the people that we assumed were more committed actually was. Uh, I, I just saw something um, from uh, Carl Truman in First Things, and uh, it had the title of it, if I recall, was something like the Apocalypse, or you know, basically the Revelation. What what, mm-hmm. what we've seen, and according to Carl, um, his guess is that about thirty percent of the people that we thought were going to come back aren't going to come back, even when things kind of wow. settle down. Mm-hmm. So, and then uh, Barna, I don't know if you saw this, George Barna, the researcher, he predicts that uh, 20% of the churches are going to close in the next 18 months. Now, that includes a lot of weak, you know, sort of mainline churches that were on fumes. But there's a church right around the corner from me, an American Baptist church, which has, which has a facility that's about the same size as ours that uh, is closed. The, the facility is wow. up for sale now. So, you know, I think, I think those are things that we're about the kind of the health of our churches. But I also think what's been brought to the surface is just the shallowness of our approach in terms of ministry. I think that there was a, there was a profound lesson I learned when I lived in Cambridge. I lived in Cambridge, Massachusetts for about a decade in a neighborhood that was right between Harvard and MIT. I spent a little time at Harvard Divinity School. And uh, during that time, I was uh, pretty much a pragmatist. I, I more or less thought it's packaging. You know, we just need, and people just don't understand how wonderful you know, the gospel is, and if we just mm-hmm. package it a little better. You know, what I discovered is that many people who reject the gospel understand what they're rejecting, and um, and it's not a matter of packaging. And I think that um, we have a situation where most of our past, you know, many pastors, I think influenced by the church growth movement, have really bought into the idea that it's a marketing problem and yep. not a substance problem. And that creates a whole set of expectations um, and what's happened with, you know, both events, the Black Lives Matter stuff and, the, and you know, the coronavirus, is that we're being forced to deal with substance. And um, because, the pa- you know, how do you, how do you package? You can't come to church for a long time, but you can watch me on a video, right. you know, that kind of thing. Yep. Um, you know, if, 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 we're, if we're, we're that easy all along, then why even have church, you know, mm-hmm. why not just have a YouTube channel and leave it at that? 
All right. Well, one of the things that, that I've noticed during this season that's been quite shocking, and I've noticed it with the reaction of the general church public toward John MacArthur. And I, I thought upon seeing what MacArthur was doing, what the, the elders at Grace Community Church was, was doing, that they would have support from all across the country. And certainly there's been pockets of support. But one of the things I've noticed is how much the church is considering public witness as the highest priority. And this is some of the stuff you're talking about, about the packaging it. And so we're, we're, we're considering public witness before we're considering things like basic obedience to God. And so we're sacrificing obedience to God and, and thinking more critically about how we can get the public to like us or, or to keep listening to us. And I just, for the life of me, can't understand why public public witness has become this this idol that it seems like the masses in Christian America are pursuing. And that's one of the things that I've seen is that it, obedience to God is just thrown out the window. Well, who cares if God says for us to gather? If the, if the word church means assemble, what's that really matter? We'll just watch YouTube. I don't know. I mean, have you seen that from, from your perspective as well as this, this idol of, of just public witness, public witness, public witness? Yeah, I guess I would put it a little differently. Okay. Uh, I think that public witness can, can, can um, make you hated. It, it kind of gets back to my packaging thing. Uh, the idea that I think that what, what people have, have kind of bought into is the idea that in order for us to, to promote the gospel, we have to be likable. Right. We have to have people like us. And we, have, we, we don't challenge their assumptions. So the, one of the things I, I purposefully did, and I think, this was a, I, think, I think that this was a mistake by the guys at MacArthur's church. I think that they uh, shouldn't have focused on, you know, the thing that they did focus on, which was, it was, which was true. I think that they should have brought up the First Amendment was suspended. Mm. Yeah. This is, a, this is a First Amendment issue. Mm-hmm. What we have here is we have the governing authority has overstepped the bounds that have been established by the founding fathers. This, mm-hmm. this is a constitutional matter. We have a right challenges. And in fact, this is the ones get worked out in a constitutional republic. This whole idea that you can quote, you know, Romans 13, 1 through 7, and it shuts everything down. We just salute and say, whatever you say, Caesar, is nonsense. The whole Protestant tradition that uh, gave us the constitutional republic that we have now, and as citizens, not merely subjects, we don't just salute we don't, you know, the, what, what Paul was addressing was a different political regime. We have is a, uh, a system in which we, we judge our rulers every two to four years. Right. It's called an election. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then we have a court system by which, you know, what I, what I think should happen, and I, probably what MacArthur and those guys are going to do is they're going to take the, the, the state of California to court. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And, and, and sue the state of California. And if it goes all the way to the Supreme Court, good, because I precedent was set. This Nothing's like this happened in living memory. Mm-hmm. You know, just a bunch of people are afraid, and the experts have their mathematical models, which are just mathematical models. Right. And they freak everybody out, and everything gets shut down. And then we discover, well, you know, the math wasn't so good. And, you know, I think that based on some things that that I think – we just didn't know. And perhaps someone that I have heard, you know, in, you know, in, in the, in, when, when we think about governors or, you know, people who are, you know, setting these, uh, establishing these uh, guidelines and rules and so forth. No one is dealing with the constitutional question. Yeah. I've not heard it brought up. Yeah. I think it's about time that we take it to them and we, and we say, 
this was a, a, a suspension of the mm-hmm. First Amendment. I, I just think we need to be more um, proactive and more confrontational. Yeah, that's good. Um, if, if, any, if anything, that you know, what we should be learning from Black Lives Matters is that confrontation is not bad. Their whole, their whole program is based on confrontation. Mm-hmm. We need to start pressing the issues and, and confronting things. Agreed. I, I just finished a book called Who is King in America? And it looks to be a low production book. I don't really know who, there was no publisher. I think it was like an indep- independent pu- publisher, but uh, it was really fascinating going through the, some of the original documents and, of the founding fathers and seeing how this idea of the king being, the power of the king being pushed out to the people and the, the fact that the that citizens are king in our country. And a, a part of a constitutional republic is that we have elected representatives. And, and these are things that I didn't know going into 2020. These are things that I'd, I'd heard, but I didn't know my civic responsibilities. And so the approach to Romans 13 you know, it has to be interpreted through the lenses of, of which government that God has established in the place that you live. And if it means the people are having some sort of power here, then we need to wield it according to God's word in a way that's that's right and good. But for us to lay it down and then act as if we live in a monarchy is 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 wrong. It's it's, it's laying down and letting people rule in a way that they, they were not intended to rule. And so I, I fully agree. I think that we need to, as the church, understand the American Constitution, understand our responsibilities as civilians, and then act. But, you know, everybody says, well, you can't get political. Like, my goodness, when we're talking about obedience and disobedience here, we're not talking about politics. We're, we're talking about obeying or disobeying God. Well, the, the authority didn't, didn't uh, hesitate to, in, to intervene in the life and work of the church. Right. Yeah, that's good. So we should definitely intervene uh, in the life of, uh, you know, the United States for sure. Okay. And be that prophetic voice. Okay. Let's switch gears a little bit. Let's go to, uh, let's talk about man of the house. I read men of the house, house twice this year was really thankful for the work. I appreciate you putting the time and energy of, uh, into writing books. I know that that's a lot of uh, blood, sweat and tears to get that, to get stuff like that done. Uh, you had a few concepts, uh, concepts in there that I wanted to talk about that I think pastors need to really think through. And number one is productive property. And, and I want you to give a definition of productive property. And then I would love for you to tell the, the pastors who are listening in, why is productive property important specifically for pastors? Well, the productive property is a, uh, sometimes referred to as real property. <clears throat> um, the problem with the term real property is that sometimes that's associated exclusively with real estate or, or precious metals. Um, but productive property is, is something, uh, an, you know, an item of productive property, an example of productive property is something that you own that can, that can give you a living. Mm-hmm. So, you know, your toothbrush doesn't give you a living. You know, it's, uh, it's yours, but, and maybe it's important to brush your teeth in the work you, put, you perform. <laughs> but... A productive property is something that can create income or create some other good that makes life possible. Mm-hmm. So obviously land is the easiest thing to, 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 to you know, provide as an example. Um, land, obviously you can farm it if it's fertile and the food that you derive from that land um, sustains you, it gives you a living. Uh, that's sort of a subsistence uh, economy, but but you can also grow food for the market. Mm-hmm. And when you grow food for the market, obviously you sell it, and then you can uh, live off of the profit. Uh, 
So, you know, you could build a, you can build a, an apartment building on it. You can build a parking lot and rent out the, re- the parking spaces. You know, that's an example. But there are all mm-hmm. sorts of things that uh, can be identified as productive property. Generally, though, they tend to be classified as um, either businesses or some kind of real estate, some form of real estate. Now, there are paper assets that can generate income through dividends and, and interest. But, mm-hmm. I mean, a lot of capital is required for that. Um, now if you have equities, like stocks and so forth, uh, the only way you're going to be able to, to live off of those is by selling them. Mm-hmm. And that gets you back into the toothbrush category. Right. So what I'm talking about is, is uh, property that you don't have to liquidate in order to live off of. Mm-hmm. So a lot, most folks have, you know, uh, you know, a house that they live in, but the house uh, that, that they maybe own or, um, but, but the house, the only way it's going to be able to provide you with income, unless you're very creative and figure out ways to, to turn it into an income maker uh, is by selling it. And then you don't have a place to live. Right. So that, that's what distinguishes sort of property that we, in the way we normally think about it, just stuff you own from productive property. Pro- productive property is stuff that you own that generates, in, you know, income or helps you uh, have a living without having to sell it. Yeah. So, you know, I, I, you know, to to the other part of your question, you know, why is it important for a pastor to have productive property? I think it's a tremendously important for a pastor to have productive property, uh, particularly if uh, he's going to engage in any kind of um, teaching or preaching that might offend, um, which is just about everybody. Right. <laughs> or at least it should be everybody. <laughs> right. Because you're going you're gonna to find yourself in, in situations where, um, you know, the choice is going to be between your income as a pastor mm-hmm. and nothing. Right. So let's say, let's say you have somebody in your church who is... Um, you know, guilty of some uh, some sin that is uh, at you know at you know uh, at a level where it requires some kind of public discipline. Mm-hmm. But that person also happens to be your biggest donor, right? And he maybe has family on the board, or you know, is, is even on the session himself. Mm-hmm. So suddenly, you're confronted with a situation where you're like, okay, if I really follow through with this. I do what I know scripture tells me to do. First of all, I can hope and pray that he's going to repent. Yeah. But there's always the possibility that he's going to harden his heart and he's just going to turn, turn against you or me. And, uh, you know, who knows how this will all play out. Mm-hmm. Well, if you have a uh, productive property, something that you can turn to, then you've got something that can strengthen your backbone. Now I know that faith ought to be adequate. But it's it's, remar- it's remarkable just how, um, I guess, uh, squishy uh, mm-hmm. convictions can become, particularly if you have children to take care of or whatever. In other words, yes, faith, you should be willing to be an Elijah. Yeah. Yes, you, right. you really should be willing to, to, t- to go, you know, but as far as I know, Elijah wasn't married. <laughs> yeah, didn't have kids. <laughs> That's, right. Yeah. That's right. So when you have these kinds of responsibilities, I think it's prudent, and I mean prudent in a really good sense, to think about what ifs. You know, what mm-hmm. if I find myself? So, to give an example of how this worked in my life. So, when I was um, in, in a, pa- a pastorate, two pastorates back, 
um, I found myself in a denomination that was moving in a direction that I didn't think I should go in because I didn't think it was scriptural. Okay. And uh, as my convictions uh, grew stronger, I, I realized that, you know, I really needed to leave. But I had three small children and a homeschooling wife, and the children were all under the age of seven or so. Okay. And I thought, you know, um, I don't have any prospects outside my own denomination. So this wasn't just like a particular church. This, you know, the entire denomination was was in play here, not just, a, just, not just the place I was. Mm-hmm. So I realized that I needed to create my escape route. So over the course of about four or five years, I built a real estate uh, portfolio that was worth about a million and a half dollars. I had 18 tenants. Okay. And I, I did that as a full-time pastor. And the church was growing. We, mm-hmm. we went through a building program. It was just freaky how, how much more energy I had when I was younger. <laughs> <laughs> I right. can't even imagine how I did all this stuff. Then. <laughs> but uh, anyway, uh, there, it, there came a point where it was like the, the last straw was put on the camel's back, and I, and I was able to say, I'm ready to go. Mm-hmm. And I, it was a sad situation in the sense that I loved the people of my particular church. There was nothing uh, in my particular church that precipitated right. the departure. Mm-hmm. Um, but because I was a part of a larger organization a denomination that I could no longer in good conscience be belong to, I had to leave. And so, but I was able to, I was able to leave because of that. Yeah. Yeah. That's helpful. Now. So for you, uh, you, you had apartment building complex or something like that. Now you had your young kids, how in the world you're seeing this happen in your, in your denomination, how, what was the process? Like, did you just say, okay, how, how am I going to go from pastoring a church? That's my only, that's my single income. Did you have, uh, I mean, uh, money from a side job that, that went to this or was it just a bunch of, I mean, hard work and sweat equity into this building? You just bought something that was junky and built it up. How, how do you go from not having an apartment building or a or complex to having one? Yeah. Well, it was a, it was a uh, process. Yep. So, um, so I have a background in the trades. Okay. So I could do a lot of work myself. Yep. And then um, timing was great. I mean, there were a lot of things about that particular time that um, are different than now. And then I did have uh, another source of income. I was a college. I was an adjunct professor. I taught philosophy at a Christian college in Boston. Okay. So, you know, I was teaching maybe two classes at a time. Okay. Um, so I had a church. I had those classes, and I, so I, I was driving income from those. Um, my first purchase was a two-family. So I bought a two-family in Boston back in 1994 for $135,000 or $136,000. Awesome. That place today is like worth six hundred dollars to $700,000. Right. Know? So wow. you know, that's, that's like, like you, know, you can't replace that. But um, because of that, uh, you know, I was able to build, I had some equity to work with, uh, and um, I was able to take that equity and invest it in other properties and build them o- up over time. Mm-hmm. And uh, so uh, it, w- it was a process that took about 10 years okay. from, from the, that first purchase to the time when I left that denomination. And uh, now there are other ways it can be done. I've got a friend who uh, has done really well. Uh, he's a pastor and 
he has he has a background with cars. And he planted a church in the Boston area. Okay. And one day, one day at a presbytery uh, meeting, a uh, meeting of the presbytery, we were having lunch together, and he just, on an offhanded way, mentioned something about his business. And I said, you know, Troy, tell me about that. What what is this whole thing you're talking about? So anyway, what he did is he discovered that um, you know the key bombs with all the electronic you know stuff in them. Yeah, uh, you know, to get into your car and stuff like that. They're tremendously expensive to replace. It's like yes, two hundred, three hundred dollars if you lose one. Yep. So he said, I I know that there's a lot of fat here. <laughs> so he just on the side did some research and discovered, you know, how to make them or learned how to make them himself. Hmm. Uh, so he, he started a business on the side making these keys and selling them, you know, and undercutting the uh the competition at the local dealerships. Mm-hmm. So people needed to get into their car. And he had a van that allowed him to actually make the key on the spot. He would actually go to the person who was stranded outside the car. He knew how to get the information that he needed. He'd make the key right there for him and get, you know, you know, a pretty nice check when when he did that. So the business grew. He's got like three guys working for him now full time. He's still a full time pastor. Wow. (laughs) So he's, He's got a business with three employees working full time and he's a pastor of a growing church. And uh, so when I met him, I, he said, I, I said, I got to come down and check out this thing, Troy. And so he took, I met him in his house. He's got this beautiful house with an apartment on it. Okay. You know, so he bought, and then a, and a cottage in the back. He owns like five acres. He's from North Carolina and he's living in just south of Boston and he can hunt on his own land. You know, it's just <laughs> like, amazing. It's just, wow. yeah, it's just, yeah, he's got all this stuff going on. I'm, and I'm like, Troy, man, you, you are the guy. You are the guy I'm talking about, you know? And, uh, you know, and he's just a regular guy. I mean, he's just a great, you know, evangelical pastor. You know, um, you would never guess mm-hmm. that he's got all this stuff going on on the side. Uh, yeah. And his and his people are, are grateful that he can do it. Yeah, that's fantastic. And a real pl- practical example also, Just this just came from me, you know, reading your book and, and thinking through and then taking opportunities when they came. And let me encourage every pastor to li- that's listening to, to buy the be, buy Chris's book, Man of the House, and read it. It's, it's incredibly helpful. But one of the things that's uh, happened since I read the book is uh, an opportunity came up for me to be, uh, along with uh, my, my best buddy, actually, a maintenance guy for these ice machines, these stationary ice machines that you can go and you can put your your dollar in and you can get water and then you can also get ice. And uh, I get paid very well to to be the maintenance man on this ice machine. And the doctor friend who put these in, he's got 13 more of these to go in. And so I'm thinking through this long term, what would it look like for me to actually purchase these, you know, in a decade or, you know, 20 years from now to where I can have some of these in my possession. I don't know if that will happen or not, but what, what's, what's working out right now is that I'm getting this extra income on the side to be able to put down on, you know, all the rest of my student loans. And then I've got a plan within five to six years to have my house paid off completely and, and all my student loans. And so we, we would have zero debt whatsoever with, with the, all the equity from our, our home that we would have paid off. And so, uh, you know, that, that's coming directly from reading man of the house and then taking opportunities that come, um, you know, when they come. And that's uh, great. Yeah, yeah. That's great. Yeah. Thanks for mentioning uh, saying that. I, I, I think that's fabulous. And, and, and as you can see, it's, it's primarily a mindset. Mm-hmm. As soon as you start thinking in these ways, your eyes open and you see opportunities that you might have missed if you hadn't been thinking about. It. Yeah, exactly. Because what I'm thinking now is, okay, if I can get, if I can be the manager of all these 13 ice machines and then get get everything paid off within five or six years, then I can start uh, acquiring property 
land, apartment complex, whatever it may be that that's presented there. And so there's this freedom that can come from that. And then with our church, our church is a church plant within the last five years. And we're, we have about a hundred people, but I still don't have a, I, I do have a full-time salary, but I don't have full benefits, those sorts of things yet. And so I'm trying to think in these, these things in parallel lines here. Okay. What would this look like if this continues to grow? And then as with our church as well. And the good thing is I'll be able to continue to do both and, and, uh, and then see where it goes from there. Yeah, that's great. Well, and I'm really pleased to hear hear about it. And I think uh, there are a lot of ways to think about this uh, as enhancing your ministry, too. I mean, the fact that you are able to get out and connect with people around these machines, mm-hmm. uh, you know, uh, is, is one point of contact. But also, I think that there are a lot of guys in the ministry who suffer from an inability to relate to, to businessmen, particularly small, you know, small business owners, right. um, because the uh, sort of the worlds that they come from are so different from the world that a, that a typical pastor who's been entirely ensconced in a kind of seminary church world environment mm-hmm. uh, can relate to. But when you have uh, this ability to sort of think in these ways, a lot of these guys, you know, say, Hey, he's okay. You know, he's, he understands my world. Uh, mm-hmm. and their respect for you steps up a, a notch. Right. Uh, they don't, they don't think of you as, you know, that, that, uh, you know, freckle faced kid fresh out of seminary, like you see in the film with Clint Eastwood, you know, uh, uh, Grand Torino. Have, have uh-huh. you ever seen Grand Torino? I have. Yeah. Fantastic movie. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. Right. So you know, you know, Clint Eastwood in that film has zero zero regard for that young guy, that young, right. young priest. You know, mm-hmm. <laughs> he's just sort of like, you know, kind of like what a what a punk. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, that, that's how it is. And I think I've said to my listeners before and told guys that I work with that pastoring and even our elder shepherding is is blue collar work. At least it should be. So if you find yourself regularly not doing any sort of blue collar work, then at least go mow your yard. At least, mow the, <laughs> at least go mow the church building's yard. At least, at least do something with your hands that gets gets you connected with the the blue t- blue collar nature of shepherding. And and so that this for me has been really a life source that's been helpful. It's been encouraging. And for guys that are out there, just do something. But do something. And I think you're exactly right. If you're only in the ivory tower, you lose respect from real men, from real guys, just everyday average Joe Schmo. Uh, who there's just nothing to relate to. There's just, there's nothing there to, to be able to be on the same, uh, you know, playing field at all. So it's crucial. Um, all right. I want to, I want to talk a little bit about Mr. Shu <laughs> uh, and the idea of gravitas. And I met a pastor, pastor friend of mine, unfortunately in the last year, it's just a really sad story, but he, he ended up taking his own life and, uh, mm. He had been in ministry for a very long time and had done some amazing things. God had used him in some really incredible ways and in my life and countless thousands of people's lives. And uh, the man had gravitas. You couldn't necessarily put your finger on it because he wasn't an amazing preacher. It wasn't like he was an amazing scholar or even amazing writer. He did write some good things and but there was a gravitas. It was a, you know, you, it was the intangible thing that you can't, you can't necessarily define, but you know, he's got it. Uh, I would love for you to explain Mr. Shu and, and your idea or concept of gravitas from your book and why gravitas, why do we want gravitas? Right, right. Well, it's, it's not something that I came up with. Uh, this is something that goes a long way back in the Western, you know, in, in Western tradition. Um, and the, uh, the word gravitas, obviously, comes from the Latin for heavy. 
And it's where we get the word gravity. So sometimes we'll say, well, that, that, that situation, you know, that, that, um, I guess, uh, situation has a lot of, it's a very grave situation. In other words, it's heavy. It's something Mm -hmm. that we've got to take seriously. So, uh, the Romans uh, observed that there are some people who seem to be taken more seriously than other people. They have weight. You can't ignore them. You can't mm-hmm. take them lightly. Right. Um, by the way, uh, Hebrews uh, made the same observation. The word glory literally means heavy. Really? So like in the, yeah. So like in the New Testament, huh. when Paul says the weight of glory, he's actually being redundant. Really? <laughs> yeah. So, uh, so kabod, it's the Hebrew, uh, it means heavy. So it means, uh, you know, it's often associated with, uh, gold because gold is heavy gold mm-hmm. is lustrous, that kind of thing. But anyway, um, when you have gravitas, you have an ability to execute justice. You also have an enhanced ability to demonstrate mercy because mercy is is again only taken seriously if there's something to contrast it with. If mm-hmm. if, if you're just a if you're just a lightweight that no one uh, takes seriously, then when you say I forgive you, it's like well of course you forgive me. You, there's like no other option for you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> you couldn't you couldn't really press the matter anyway if you wanted to. So um, so when you're heavy. Uh, you have the ability to execute justice because uh, there's something about your presence that puts people at, at makes them kind of ill at ease. Mm-hmm. Now, this is very much a, a sort of like a out of keeping with the standard sort of way of thinking what we find in the, evangelic, the evangelical world today, where everybody's supposed to like be warm and, you know, just uh, full of... Uh, just sort of, you know, just give everybody warm fuzzies every time right. they're around, around you. But um, when when the, when things are really difficult, you want somebody with some gravitas to address a situation that just makes everybody un, un, uneasy or makes everybody fearful. So the story that I, I used to, to, to illustrate this was the one you're referring to about Mr. Shu. Mr. Shu was the vice principal of discipline in my, uh, my high school. So I'm from Western Pennsylvania, and this was in the late 70s, early 80s, back in the day when, you know, um, they really did have people with titles like mm-hmm. vice principal of discipline. Yeah. <laughs> and, and everybody was afraid of this guy. Now, he wasn't like, uh, you know, a tattooed, muscle-bound guy. He, he wasn't a huge guy, but he was probably, he was a big guy, maybe 6'1", six, 6'2". Six, six, and, uh, and even the teachers were afraid of him. He was just one of these guys. He would walk in the room and just everybody would just kind of look over and notice. You just couldn't help but notice. And wherever he went, people kind of talked a little quieter. <laughs> it was just the way he was. Mm-hmm. I never saw him actually get yelled at anybody. I never, I, 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 he never raised his voice as far as I ever noticed. Uh, um, his last name was spelled S-H-U-E not S-H-O-E. And the reason I know that is because one of my best friends in high school, who, by the way, is now the academic dean at a seminary in, in New York, well, was always called into the office. <laughs> he got a lot of stuff uh, with his name on it that he was, that, uh, you know, sent him, you know, to detention or whatever. So he corrected me one time on, his, on the spelling of the name. <laughs> Gotcha. <laughs> Spelled S H U E. But anyway, so I was on a bus one time 
And, uh, you know, I was maybe, I don't know, a sophomore or freshman in high school. And, you know, there were some big guys in the back, older, you know, further along in, in puberty than I, than I was. And, uh, and they were the kind of guys that everybody would just, you know, hated to be around because they, they picked on people, that kind of thing. So anyway, they're in the back, kind of, you know, teasing other kids. And uh, Mr. Shu comes out of the building, out of the school, and uh, we're in a long line of buses waiting to pull out. And he's coming directly at our bus, walking right at our bus. And he's looking at the back of the bus, and he sees the boys. And one of the boys just says, cool it, it's Mr. Shu. And so at that point, they just got real quiet. And Mr. Shu just came to the bus and stepped up on the bus. And it didn't actually happen, but it kind of felt like it did. It's like the whole bus tipped. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and he just walked up to this top of the steps and just looked in the back and pointed at the boys and just did that with his finger, you know, come to me. And then he turned around and walked away. And the boys got up and went. <laughs> they were just kind of sheepishly walked down the steps and followed him into the building. Uh-huh. Uh, what he had was gravitas. Yeah. And so, you know, my point that I try to make to guys is that you need to get that. You need to figure out how it works. Mm-hmm. It's not like magic pixie dust or something. Um, it's something that you can acquire, but you've got to decide that you want it. Yeah. And, and you, you need to be able to, to live with it. Being, you know, having gravitas doesn't mean you're the life of the party all the time. Having gravitas doesn't mean that everybody likes you. In mm-hmm. fact, having gravitas may mean that there are some people who really don't like you. Right. But it's still important to have. Yeah. I had a guy that I was working with at one point a couple churches ago. This was probably seven or eight years ago. He was the youth pastor, and he was 37 or eight years old. I was probably 29 or 30 at the time. And he had no gravitas at all. And he was regularly saying, I don't want to grow up. I just want to be a kid. <laughs> he, he, he wore clothes that communicated that he wanted to be a child still. And I sat down with him one day and he would always complain. Why, didn't pe- why don't people respect me? Why don't people look to me? And, and why am I not invited to meetings? And so I just told him, you're not invited to meetings because you're wearing that shirt. And uh, it was like a <laughs> super, superhero shirt. And you're not invited to meetings because you're, you're always talking about how you never want to grow up. And you're not going to be treated like a grown-up if you don't want to be a grown-up. And, uh, and that gravitas, if you don't have it, you can pursue it, but you have to evaluate. If you're, if you're a pastor and saying foolish, silly things like you don't want to grow up, um, then people are not going to see you as a grown-up. And it, it, you won't be treated like that. And, and so I, that gravitas, when I read that, uh, we do want it. We do want to walk into a room and for people to feel, hey, not that, that Jesus himself is walking in the room, obviously, but, but people should feel a level of calm. When we come into the room, okay, things are going to be okay. You know, think, things are maybe crazy. It may be wild, but our pastor's here. Yeah, I think that's really, really important. I, I like, I'm glad that you made that connection between, because the way I just put it a minute ago might lead to, to the belief that you're just the guy that everybody is just nervous to be around. Right. But you're right. right. But if, if you have gravitas and you represent uh, what is right, you represent what is just, then people are actually going to be at ease. Mm-hmm. So let me give you an example of how that worked with me. I had a, when I was a youth pastor, I was a youth pastor. Um, I had a youth group that was made up of three sort of smaller groups and the total group was maybe about a hundred, 120 kids. Okay. 
So I had a lot of volunteers working with me. But this was in Kansas City, and it was a very odd sort of sort of thing to de- that developed. But this is what happened. I had essentially three youth groups. I had a youth group that was made up of, you know, kids that were pretty much, you know, sort of white bread, um, middle class suburban kids in okay. Kansas City. And then I had a group of kids who were from the Ozarks kids, but they were white trash. And they were really wild. I mean, as wild as you could possibly imagine a bunch of kids, you know, ages 13 to 17 could be. Mm-hmm. And then I had uh, a, a third youth group of, of, of African-American kids, largely from uh, the Mississippi Delta. That okay. had a, their, their families had moved up into Kansas City. And so these were kids that were from... Th- three different parts of the city. Occasionally get them all together for a big event. Generally speaking, they were, you know, we would have activities in their neighborhoods so they wouldn't be interacting with each other. Then we'd have these big events. And as you can imagine, all the kids from the suburbs were scared to death (laughs) of of these two other groups. Right, right. (laughs) And uh, and the kids from the other groups uh, were just so full of energy and sort of uh, kind of a tribalism almost. You know that it was almost inevitable that there would be some some uh, something that would happen that would create some conflict. Right. And uh, so there there were just you know a number of times where I had to you know become Mister Shoe mm-hmm. you know and just establish order. <laughs> right. <laughs> and you could see all the kids from the suburban suburban group just were so relieved uh-huh. <laughs> that I had just you know established order and uh-huh. uh, and the kids from. The other groups loved me, and we, I had a relationship with them. But it was just one of these things where it was just sort of this weird sort of chemistry. But um, I was able to to exercise, you know, authority in those situations, and frank and, ho- and, and thankfully, no one got hurt. That's good. <laughs> That's good. Praise the Lord. Uh, all right. Well, let's let's kind of start. Let's finish where we started, and let's talk about 2020, and let, we'll wrap up this interview. Uh, if pastors are to move forward and say they're not one of the five churches that closed down this year and say Barna is, I mean, hit the nail on the head and, you know, 20% of churches are going to close their doors. Well, that still leaves 80% of churches open. So 80% of pastors are still pastoring those same churches, but the hostility, I think no matter who gets elected in November, the, the cultural slide continues to move in, in one direction. And that direction is to the sharp left. I mean, philosophically, theologically, I mean, major denominations, denomination I'm a part of, the Southern Baptist Convention. I think even if Moeller gets elected, we're still continuing to just dive to the left and jump and run full speed to the left. It's just, it's it's wild. What's it going to take for these pastors who are listening in? You got an opportunity here to speak to some pastors. What's it going to take for them to not sell out, to be in the in crowd, for them to take a stand upon the word of God and to lead their people no matter what the cost? Yeah, I think that counting the cost is a, is a thing you got to do. Okay. If you if you can if you can embrace uh, be, becoming a pariah, then um, you'll be able to pass. You'll be you'll be able to go through this this period. I uh, I wrote something a few years back uh, about being a pariah. Uh, I think it was entitled "How to Be a Cheerful Pariah." Something okay. like that. <laughs> and. Uh, <clears throat> I've had a number of friends over the years who are pariah, uh, depending on where where they are. So 
<clears throat> you you know that I'm a friend with of Doug Wilson. Doug Correct. Wilson is obviously yep. a pariah in many in the eyes of many people. When when people when I talk to people about Doug, I said I usually say you should know you should meet some of my other friends. I've got friends that make Doug seem like you know tiny Tim. Just <laughs> <laughs> you have some interesting <laughs> friends in. <laughs> yeah, I, I I can introduce you to them and um, and in their in their in their various worlds they are pariah and uh, and. They're all great people. I mean, they're all people I enjoy being around. They're not like, you know, bitter, nasty people. They're all, you know, actually cheerful pariah. You know, in fact, Doug is one of the easiest people you could be around in terms of, you know, person to talk to. He's very gracious. He's actually, he's actually interested in what you think. He's not mm-hmm. just waiting for an opportunity to tell you what he thinks. You know, right. he's, <laughs> he's a real human being. And, um, but I guess, um, I guess that's the thing you got to do. I think the challenge, and this is a challenge that I have. I've been I've been saying this stuff for about a year now to my folks, and I don't know if it's they're they're able to accept it. I think that there's a kind of um, well, it's like when any time you've got bad news, you know, you've got kind of the stages of death and dying. Mm-hmm. You know, initially, you know, there's a kind of denial. This can't be happening. Right. Uh, and then you get into, you know, kind of the bargaining kind of thing, which is maybe what some of these guys are doing. They're just saying, well, I'll give in on this so long as you let me keep that, that mm-hmm. kind of thing. Right. Uh, then you get anger, you know, and then depression and then acceptance. Mm-hmm. I think that a mature person is a person who works. It's not as though you don't go through all five stages. I think the mature person is able to go through them faster gotcha. than other people. So, I mean, I've been depressed about this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I've been angry about it. Um, I've been in denial about it. Uh, I guess uh, y- there are certain things in my own background that make it maybe possible for me to accept it in, uh, that maybe other people don't have the benefit of having in their own backgrounds. Mm-hmm. So I think that's another thing that we need to be kind of a, in, keep in mind is we need to be generous in spirit when it comes to uh, talking to people about these things because, you know, like I'm at, I'm standing at the end of like a 30 year process of thinking about these things. You're right. So, you know, and, and somebody, you know, is just getting started. You, you can't expect them to, but um, hopefully you can help bring them along. And so I, that's, a, that's the challenge that I'm facing. I, I think that the whole coronavirus is sort of like a dry run. Um, I think it's kind of a camel's nose in the tent. Now, mm-hmm. am, I, am, I, am I a tin hat, you know, tinfoil hat guy who thinks that there's some big conspiracy? No, I don't think that's it. I just think that uh, people on the left, are, they recognize, you know, their opportunities. Yeah. And they take advantage of them. And, and so I think in God's providence, um, this is something that may, it, it's been for, it's forced us to think about some of the things we talked about earlier, constitutional mm-hmm. issues. Yeah, uh, Protestant exactly. resistance, Protestant resistance theory, those kinds of things. Mm-hmm. So I'm hopeful that I can bring people along in my circle of influence. Uh, I'm not, uh, I don't take it for granted that I'll be able to. I, yeah. I, 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 I kind of think along the lines that, you know, I might find myself in a year or two in the same spot I was 15 years ago, mm-hmm. you know, where I'm like, okay, um, I can see the writing on the wall. <laughs> You know, mm-hmm. um, so I, I would advise pastors to, to count the cost and kind of work with their people, try to bring them up to speed on it. Be patient with your people, though, understanding that they don't know everything, you know, don't read everything you read, can't be 
you know, sort of attuned to. So like when I come back and I bring reports about something I've read or some conversation I've had or some event I was at within mm-hmm. the denomination and I say it's bad, it's worse than you know, I can't expect them to be able to fully um, sort of, you know, sort of feel the same uh, alarm that I have. Right. Yeah. They've, That's they've good. Not, they've not been through all that stuff. But at least you can try and work with them a little bit. And, and, then, mm-hmm. and then I think is the, 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 then the question is, well, what are we going to do? What are we going to mm-hmm. do? And one of the things I, I try to keep in mind is whatever you do, even if the worst doesn't happen, you should be better off for having done it. Hmm. So like with Man of the House, you know, I said in the introduction to the book, this is sort of like a prepping book, you know, like a preppers, you know, they're always like building like uh, – bunkers in Montana and stuff like that and right. rolling up on spam and ammo. <laughs> the problem with that is if there is, if there's no zombie apocalypse, you've got a bunker in Montana that you don't have anything you can do with and you got mm-hmm. a lot of ammo and spam. Yeah. But if you build, if you build a household that is made up of people who can help each other out in difficult times, well, you're in a household that you can be proud to be, to be in and enjoy even when the apocalypse doesn't happen. So if we can work with our people in our churches to get them to a place where the church is actually stronger for having prepared for something that didn't happen, mm-hmm. we're in a good place. Good. A lot of good stuff to chew on. I appreciate it. Friends, we've been talking to C.R. Wiley. Uh, Chris, why don't you tell us about the podcast before I let you go. Tell us where people can find out more about your books and your your podcast and anything else. Oh, yeah. Thanks. Well, I'm a uh, one of three hosts for a podcast called The Theology Pugcast. And uh, we've seen that podcast kind of grow way beyond anything we thought it would ever be. Um, but uh, it, my co-hosts are uh, Dr. Glenn Sunshine. He's a, a professor of early modern history at Connecticut State University and is a, a strong believer. And he's a fellow at the Colson Center. And then the other host is uh, Dr. Tom Price, Oxford mm-hmm. Ph.D., and uh, teaches at Gordon Conwell Theological Seminary. So the three of us have this show called the Theology Pugcast, P-U-G as a dog. The pug. Read my books uh, or learn a little more about the things I've written. You can go to crwiley.com. Awesome. Well, I appreciate it. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Well, thank you, Jared. It's great to be with you. Thank you for listening. For more information, please visit theshepherdscrook.co. For care and counsel, please call, text, or email to set up a session. You can follow The Shepherd's Crook on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. And please consider sharing this episode and leaving a review on iTunes or whatever other podcast platform you use. And let me encourage you to remember Jesus Christ.